Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What you drinking? I'm drinking um, all day IPA. Ugh. Nice. <laughs> Not an IPA guy myself. Yeah. Well, I am. A little thick for my liking. Well, so session. This is a session IPA, which is, means it's a little less alcohol, but oh, like see. still more than regular beer. <laughs> yeah. I always feel like. Like a little too drunk, and I just ate like a loaf of bread after like three of those, you know. Well, that's the thing. Like you know, I pay. It's like it's like a dad beer. You drink one or two. <laughs> I couldn't sit and drink well, a six pack of the shit. There's a lot of dads in the world who are light beer drinkers, my friend. Mm, I'm not there's ready for of, that. A lot of dads who are cranking mill lights. I've not there. gone that far, dude. <laughs> This this is like my light beer is a session IPA, which has like <laughs> so it's like five point five percent alcohol instead of like seven. <laughs> it's four point seven percent. A light beer for me has become Jameson instead of single malt. <laughs> that's that's becoming for me. Yeah, that's you know what malt. I like about tonight, Brad? What's that? Is that we just interviewed Brian Keeneland from the Bouncing Souls and we're doing intros. And all that while the first presidential debate is happening. Yeah, I could. We're not watching. I, it. I would. I would rather box my own fucking balls <laughs> than watch those two go at it. Goodness gracious! It's like it's been pre-written. Like, why are we even doing this shit? Everybody knows, like, what there's undecided vote. Like, get the fuck out of here! This is such theater. It's not I'm even not- undecided votes. It's like, well, yeah, but, but just I haven't been able to watch debates even before they were, you know, had such fucking horrible people in them because, and I don't include Biden as a horrible person. I think he's probably a really authentically great guy, but he's just another politician. He's not going to get up there and say anything. Oh no. You know, like they never do, you know, I mean, the reason I've said this, I've said this before and I probably said it on this podcast, but like years ago, I mean, like, well before the Obama years, it was probably during one of the like, I think it was during like one of the W debates. And I thought to myself, I like, I said, someday some fucking guy is going to get up here and he's going to talk like a human being and people are going to go nuts. And unfortunately, that guy was Donald Trump. 
he talked like a fucking asshole, but he talked yeah. like a real person instead of like talking like, you know, because every single politician, whether you love them or hate them, they just, they never give you a fucking answer. They, you know, they just talk this politico speak, you know, you ask a question and they change it or they like, and I just thought like someday someone's going to get up and talk like a human being and people are going to love them. And like. I didn't know it was going to be the bro. devil. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right in a lot of ways. Obviously, people were sick of like standard vanilla political structure where a lot of stuff gets said and nothing's getting done. But if you want to tell me that that thing talk, I don't know anybody who fucking talks you're, like that. You crazy? Like right, I don't know anybody right. who thinks like you're that. Right. Talks Maybe like I that. should say he just like, didn't talk like a politician. He didn't talk like a right. politician, sure, but he didn't right. talk like a fucking person right. who knows what's happening in the world. You're right. That's anybody? A fucking fact. You're right. Yeah. Anybody like that in in our world would have gotten beat down. Oh, just like within <laughs> seconds. Seconds. You know what I want to see? One of them tell me. This is what I want to see. I want to see uh, one of them tell me what the public bus schedule was like in the town they grew up. Yeah. I want one of them to tell me, <laughs> how do you make a box of fucking Kraft macaroni and cheese? What's your style? <laughs> Use a lot of butter, a lot of milk, none at all. You know, like these, that's what you could fucking tell me to tell me that you're actually like a real human right. being in this world. Right. Like, like neither of them are going to say that you're right that, that's where no, it's, it's true i have no interest but, in watching it it'll just depress no, me no. and no my metaphor was was 100 i would <laughs> literally rather punch my own balls right now than watch <laughs> that thing i would just sock them and i and i do and i do want to say like not to not to dwell on this but like i do think that you know i think joe biden's a genuinely nice guy whose whose heart is in the right place and i and i you know i think that i think well, whatever. It doesn't really matter because anything's better yeah. than Trump. But like, I mean, at this point, here's where I wonder, like, sure, he comes off like that. I, I've I have no fucking idea. But I do think to get to that level in politics, to be vice president that long, to be these things that long, these people know shit, see shit, do shit that I am highly incapable. of. Oh, well, you know what absolutely. I mean? Like. Like just being a career politician, getting to that stage, the kinds of, you know, dicks you've had to suck and vulvas you've had to lick <laughs> to get to that point, And the people who are over your head and under your head and how many people you're answering to on a regular basis. Like, I don't think they're human. I don't think they're human in the way like Mick Jagger's not human anymore, because right. how could he be? Because right. his reality has been so far from fucking any reality for so long. So since I, he was 18 it, years old, we walked into a room. Every girl wanted to fuck him. Like, how could you yeah. possibly maintain nothing sort of normal life? anymore? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like that. John Mulaney has a stand up bit about it where he's like, you know what? Mick Jagger never says anymore. Uh, does anyone know where I could find a laptop charger? <laughs> you know, like the dumb fucking things that normal people have to say that people like that don't have to say anymore, you know? So I know, yeah, sure, Joe Biden's from fucking Scranton. You know, I know some cool <laughs> salt-of-the-earth people from Scranton. Like, I, I don't know if he's still living the Scranton experience. It's where it, we're just voting for, you know, who the fuck knows, man? Who knows if these are genuine things, genuine people? You know, it's just impossible. We just got to make decisions. Basically, I'm in a purely selfish business now, you know? Like, I don't care what you fucking are, what you like, what are you doing? What are you doing for me? 
What are you doing for my life? What are you right. doing my, for my family's life? What are you right. doing for my friends? I don't give a shit how you package it anymore. I don't care about your suit, your speech, none of that shit. I care about your policy, and that's it. Because the rest of it is just fucking dog shit, no? Word up. <laughs> Let's just cap this and say, as cliche as it sounds, get the fuck out there and vote. Even if you're yeah. going to vote for that fucking sure. orange piece of shit, sure. just fucking make your voice heard. And take it from me, a guy who voted for Ralph Nader twice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't do it. Just don't do it this time. Yeah. Don't do it this yeah. time. This next, time. Next one. This time next one will make, will Because make this time, it, you know what? It is true that every vote counts because even though we have yeah. a fucked up system where you can live in a place like New York and think, wow, we're going to go democratic. The truth is, is like, we need to overwhelmingly have the majority vote, regardless of where the electoral college comes out as it needs to be overwhelming that everybody fucking wants a change. Yeah. So, so vote wherever the fuck you are. Vote. Wow. All right. I agree with that. Fuck that shit. Fuck all that. We didn't talk about any politics. Nope. That was as far. That's all you're going to get in this episode. That's it. We talked about cool old school shit with Brian. One of the great storytellers and spinners of yarn <laughs> I've, I've ever been around and seen. Now, now, I know I had to do the same thing when we had Pete Steinkoff on the show because, like, you know, these guys are like yep. the royalty to me. You know, he talks about this time. He's like, oh, you know, in the 90 this, 90 this, when we were doing this, when we were doing this. I was one of the little kids at their right. shows, you know. I was sneaking to New Brunswick to to go to these house shows and to, like, the place that they decided to live and immerse themselves is where I decided to spend my Saturdays and Sundays, you know. And so I love just that trickle down of, like, you know, the the people who do something. And, and a lot of these characters he's talking about, he's talking about, you know, Pedro who used to do spoken words at all their shows. And I'm like some 14 year old kid from out by where they're from listening to this like militant gay Puerto Rican skinhead, you know, like rap at these shows. And I'm like, <laughs> Whoa, this exists. This exists. It like just opened, opened up all these worlds. And, and I, I hope, I know that we're old and we're disconnected from it, but I hope that these things are still happening and the pioneers are still creating these places and the kids are being genuinely influenced it's by happening. it. And it you just don't know about the, it, old man. Carries on the tradition. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I don't have Twitch. I know I got to be on Twitch. It's out there to, to get it. But let's get into this one with Brian. It was fun. All right. Hello. Yeah, hey, Benny, what's up? These are the mellifluous tones of my voice. <laughs> Hello. Mellifluous. Remember that, that bit they used to do on, I think it was SNL, where they said SAT words said by James Earl Jones? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that was one of them. I think that's where I learned that word, because it was like... Great work on mellifluous. Mellifluous. What does it mean? No idea. <laughs> In, in excess? Something like that? I mean, that would seem right. I don't hear it often in context. Do you? I haven't seen that skit, and now I'm definitely going to go watch it. Mellifluous. Yeah, super funny. Mellifluous. Mellifluous Lee. Having a pleasant and fluid sound. Right. So I used it right. The mellifluous tones of my voice. <laughs> this is perfect. 
Let's the headmaster read a rather lengthy passage from Stephen Vincent Bennett's The Daniel... Wait, what? In an engaging, mellifluous voice. I'd say you have a mellifluous voice, Brian. Oh, you think so? I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it mellifluous. <laughs> you know what you got? You have... <laughs> You you have an accent that very few people know what it is. Interesting. But like once you start hanging around with the Souls crew, you guys got like a rap. It's like all your own, you know? Oh, definitely. Definitely yeah. we do. That's and I was mm. even given some insight into one of your group texts today talking to Kate Hiltz about you. And uh I like how uh, how uh, it kind of even carries over into your group text. Oh, group definitely. Text. Yeah. yeah. We, um, we all I can't speak for everybody. I know I'm, I probably do it the most, but uh, I like to chop my words. I like to cut words off, <laughs> shorten them, if you will. Yeah. Um, like keeping it decent. Yeah. decent, decent you know? Or like much a preach. Oh, much appreciate for sure. Keep it profesh. <laughs> profesh. So who it's invented just, this rap? Fun. Was it you? Because I'll hear certain people talking, you know, like like if you used to hang out with Dave Franklin, he would say this stuff. Exactly. You know, so so who invented this? Right. Dave Franklin, I would say, might be the godfather of it. Um, okay. Although it's in a, in a parallel universe before we even knew him in high school. In our first band, we would take Sigs and Sodes breaks. <laughs> we, we definitely fucked with some some word chopping in high school too. So I think we've always liked to just fuck with words. Um, what was your guys' high school band? Yeah, this um yeah, but the, the the like prehistoric versions of our high school band, like our first and second formations. Um, Brad Karma and the Absent-Minded Fruit Bats, for example, took Sigs and Sodes breaks. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I like your mom was written in that um, era, actually. That was pre-Bouncing Souls. Just okay. Kid shit, you know? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. it's authentically, authentically high school or, or earlier? Mm-hmm. And um, back to Dave Franklin. Yeah, he, he worked construction, but he was constructed. <laughs> And uh, some of the buds um, threw that around. I think it may have sort of began almost as an imitation. Right, right. Um, possibly, but that's just speculation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it's how we definitely, how we all talked with along with Dave. So it developed between us and Dave. I love it that he's the, uh, that he's the godfather of that. He's some kind of godfather of, of um, chopped words, I guess. Yeah, I would say that. He's an, he's an OG of it, of, of the first circle of that's word a, choppers. That's a fact. That's a fact. Now, what is it with you? You, Greg, and Pete all went to the same high school, right? Correct. Now, like, uh, did you guys know each other growing up, like Little League style? Or you kind of, like, met as, like, punks in high school? How, like, how did it come together, you guys coming together? Um, it was a small town, so we did know each other, Little League style, although it wasn't Little League baseball. It was more like township recreation soccer, like little kids soccer. Um, and then Pete and I, <laughs> like I knew Greg from sports a little bit. 
knew who he was, but then he went to a different school. Okay. Like in the little kid, like grade school years. Um, so we just kind of all knew each other just cause it was a small enough town. And, um, Pete and I were in rival PMX gangs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> story. So I, gangs is a strong word here. Sure, um, in the gangs of Basky Ridge. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Just picture that the like, where's my two dollars, kid? That was pretty much yeah from yeah. from Better Off Dead. That was kind of us, like sure. <laughs> just kind of grubby building jumps and like you know whatever building jumps and building higher jumps and building higher jumps and you know you couldn't take this jump. You're a pussy. Like your bike sucks. <laughs> that kind of shit. <laughs> just shit talking. Like yeah, just yeah. different kind of little clicks that didn't really know each other well so then the shit talking kind of was there yeah that hence yeah. the rivalry of sorts and then fast who was forward. the better bmx crew like who were you or pete a better rider yeah, pete was a i think pete was a faster racer but i think i got more rad that's just okay <laughs> you know i would just a little bit more reckless and yeah, more yeah. likely to try some stupid shit sure off a ramp and that's how the fucking destroyed my knee of course too so right right I, you know slow and steady wins the race guys just don't be <laughs> the jackass i wish someone told me that a long time ago exactly so, dude because my mom did but i didn't listen she's <laughs> yeah. like you'll pay for it later and i'm paying for it now i know it's like how many how many punk rockers in their 40s are like listen i can't jump anymore i got shin splints you know like I, I jump too much in flat fucking vans that have no support, and uh, you know, here I am. That's it. That's exactly <laughs> it, dude. Like, I hope someone got the video or the picture because that's it, that because it's <laughs> the like three feet, four feet in the air, like yeah. all at all times on stage is just over. Vans like, and- maybe it's not about telling the kids like don't jump because you know the kids are going to jump, but maybe we got to start giving them proper footwear. You know, well. You know, you would. Th- I tell you what, if I, it was me now, I probably wouldn't be so excited about vans. But you know, in the eighties, <laughs> having vans—that was a statement. Like, right? Maybe, maybe two, three people in in Basking Ridge had vans that were like were in the know, you know, and that you were cool. And, and where we is were where is the closest the shop to Basking Ridge? Like to get skate shit and BMX shit. I mean, there was yeah. nothing really close, right? Was it? Yeah, ordered shit out of like BMX yeah, Plus, right? Out of the back of BMX Plus, or like wherever the ads were, like that's where we got our skate stuff too. Like that's where we were so excited about, you know, whatever. Powell Bones 3 is coming out, like, and just being like, oh. <laughs> and you don't have any fucking income, but you just wanted, and you, you just wanted those wheels. Or you wanted, like, for me, I was obsessed with Maxi Cross cranks. They were like three piece cranks that I couldn't afford for my BMX bike. And, Pete had redline flight cranks. That was like the freshest oh, okay. cranks you could get. He had like, dope yeah, ones. Yeah. yeah. What are cranks? What are cranks? What? what are cranks? What are cranks? <laughs> They're you know you you crank your bike with them. They you know they come out of the bottom of your the the like bearing cup of your frame. There's cranks. The pedals are attached to them. So you move your legs and the cranks turn. <laughs> The chain wheel, which turns the chain, which moves the bike forward. Okay. Cranks. <laughs> you know, there was one-piece cranks. You there mean, was three-piece cranks. Oh, like oh, the gears? Like the gears? Yeah. Oh. Bearings. Oh. All right. 
<laughs> I mean, if you thing. were like really into it, you're you're messing with the gearing of your bike too. It was higher or lower right. gearing for the, like the snap off the starting gate and all that, like for racing. And, you know, that was like it got a little nerdy, I guess. But so, so. we loved our bikes. We take them apart, clean everything. So, how, did, so you how did you two reconcile, reconcile from, from rival BMX gangs to uh, starting to play music together? Um. In high school, there was a pretty small, very tiny uh, percentage of people that were into punk. I mean, yeah. there was like a handful. So we were quickly a tight-knit little group, you know? Um, that's how we all kind of converged um, around going to shows and, and just getting into music, getting into all the bands and stuff. <clears throat> and, you know, back then... Our high school was really pretty fucking cool. Like there was, <laughs> it sounds so gross to talk about cigarettes to me now, but like <laughs> yeah. we, a, we actually had a smoking lounge. There was an actual like wow. a patio. We called it smoke lounge. I'm sure it wasn't the intention of building the patio, but everybody like smoked butts out there. You know, it was like the burnout, the metalhead kids, and like the punks, and then like a couple of teachers that were like a little more dirt ass. And so we, and we actually all bonded, you know what I mean? So we, we were all knew each other and like, yo, club boom smoke. No, no. Like from the, like the maiden hash kid, you know, yeah. cause we all loved Iron Maiden and well, it, you know what I mean? It kind of crossed over Metallica sure. back then cause you could skate to it. Anything that was fast and aggressive. I liked, so I liked those metal bands and metal heads. You know what I mean? Again, it was a small town kind of knew each other anyway and knew, who each other were and everybody was pretty cool. Um, so we started, you know, going to shows together, me, Pete and Greg back then. And just keep, you know, hanging out after school every day. They'd like, Greg would come over and skate my ramps. Pete would come over and, uh, we would jam. Um, and then kind of, we just became three totally inseparable people. That's awesome. Where were you guys going to shows from there? Were you heading into the city or New Brunswick? Like, where, uh, where were you seeing most of it? Most of the shows we went to were at City Gardens in Trenton. Oh, gotcha at that time, sure. Um, it was a great club. And then we would go to the city, too. Um, who had the cool parents who would bring you guys down to Trenton? We were driving. Somebody had a oh, car. okay. Somebody know? was driving by then. Nobody's parents was driving us. Like, yeah. That's like, so sketchy, too. Like, so oh. sketch. Like you hoped your radio was still in your car when you got, when you came out after the show. Yeah. It was never a dull moment there. I mean, people, you could get jumped. You could just come outside and just get jumped or your car get fucked up or, and then there was like this, there was like a South Jersey skinhead scene. And some of those guys were pretty gnarly. Um, there was like, there was also a little bit of, there was just some pretty dangerous characters there and there was always a fight and then the fight would converge and then all file outside and do a big ass brawl. Like there's some pretty crazy shit that went down and it was all very exciting for us. We were going to every show and back then, like everything kind of under the banner of punk for us, you know, would, would be like one week it would be the cramps, which by the way, was one of the greatest shows I saw back then. Um, the, the the most exciting live shows back then were probably the Cramps and Fishbone. Ooh, nice! And 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 this is like a 
highest like a uh, guilty pleasure or it's not even that but in 1988 no, somewhere around then the red hot chili peppers kind of came into the right. into the universe of punk rock sure. punk rockers and they were playing city guards and seeing those guys play was mind blowing. Yeah. They, yeah. they put on a fucking show back then. Like, no, I saw those guys probably in '88, and it was, and it, I think it was actually with Fishbone, and it was a yeah, fucking. Yeah, they were both like show. they would tour together. Yeah, yeah. And those exactly. bands are kind of punk, punk, even though they didn't sound punk. You know, they were just the aggression kind of yeah. was there, and the attitude, and like, dude, just watching Flea play bass, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> blew sure. my brain. Like, just really? blew my brains out. I was just like, dude upside down just beating the shit out of his bass like yeah that, that was a big influence on me just live show wise like same with fishbone yeah. we never we, we we were we like admired them and kind of tried to emulate them and luckily we kind of checked ourselves pretty early on and we were like we should stop trying to <laughs> like, and, and pretend we <laughs> never did it you know of course we recorded some pretty like awkward attempts at that stuff. And back then we also loved reggae a lot. I mean, we saw Toots and the Maytals there and sure. Yellow Man. We were big into Yellow Man and Toots and the Maytals, um, to name a few. And both of them we would see in high school too. And we would try to incorporate that into songs and and then there was CB's go I was going to CB's matinees um in high school and also that just getting exposed to that whole scene and discovering a lot of great bands, New York hardcore bands, and we would bring that into the songwriting too. So the the, the songs were just you know p- kids learning how to play together, and then like let's just go into a, a reggae part, and then a hardcore part, and then like it was just like pretty scattered and you know awkward, but <laughs> right, right. we were so excited just to play. I mean, it's just the greatest feeling playing together with people, you know. So yeah. It, it takes wisdom it. to realize that just because you can play something doesn't mean you should. And right. That, that takes some <laughs> right. years to get. <laughs> you know what happened is like we started getting right around the time we started playing in New York, which is also in the first couple of years, we started getting billed, like put on all these bills that were like, thank God it's funk day or, or like okay, <laughs> funk this and whatever, like psychofunkopus and the funky this, that. And it was all like, there was a whole thing that happened where there was a lot of like bad, like white guy funk. And yeah. really, I mean, didn't matter if the bass player was amazing or if the, you know, they could play well. It's just, it's an abomination. Like it's a terrible <laughs> thing. It's just one of those bad things. Sorry. Like white reggae too, for me, like they're, they're bad things. Like, yeah. Life is too short. I'm with you. Me, it's strange. For me to listen to that stuff. Like I, when it comes on, I'm like, mm-mm. Like put on Trojan Records and, and like let's or or like King Tubby. I can listen to that for days on end. Like yeah, good a real Jamaican dub and reggae like is one of the greatest things. But I like agree. I can't fuck with white funk and white reggae. You know, there's some there's some really good guys too. I don't want to. Oh, throw yeah. it's not about talent. Them. It's just about uh, yeah. I'm with you. There's something about you could be the greatest band in the world, and it just feels. It feels different. And I'm not, I'm, they can, I yeah. don't know why. And like, you know what? I'm gonna, like you I'm said, gonna... life's too short. There's so much damn good reggae out there. Right. You dig into like the past and, and open these mm-hmm. wormholes of 
different Oof. types of reggae and artists you never heard of before. You, you might as well just go in reverse, I think, with reggae, you know? I, I feel that way. Um, that's where I live. I mean, I, I make a couple exceptions to the rule, like um, the Slackers and Hepcat, and there's there may be a couple other guys out of that New York scene, and Hepcat out of the West Coast, like, uh, to name a couple of current, more current bands that, like, did it justice, you know? And maybe that's the more honest interpretation for white people to go with it, is to make it kind of punk, make it a little, you know, to give it that spin, you know, and maybe that's the way to go, yeah. Yeah, or, or like, you know, it's it's kind of like, hmm, maybe it's just my attitude. I'm, I, I'm, I'll be the first to admit that I'm wrong at a lot of shit, <laughs> but that's my preference, you know. Yeah. I, I'm just, I haven't gotten bored of digging deeper into the entire catalog of Trojan records like that. I haven't like been like, Oh, that, that's it. I'm going to go listen to some current bands now. Sure. Do it. Even if they're good, I'm not there. Like I'm still probably for the rest of my life. I'm just going to enjoy a lot of amazing Jamaican reggae. Yeah. Any discoveries the last couple of years that, that people should, should dig into. Um, you, it's like, I just kind of named my favorites. I mean, okay. if, you, if you have Spotify and you just say like, play King Tubby just, and just let it go, yeah, you're right. going to find your own favorite stuff. And then you're going to like kind of highlight those songs and then those artists and then go down those roads. And it's the same thing with Trojan and you can follow Trojan records on Instagram and they'll do like artists of the week. And like there's so much Toots and the Maytals stuff that there was actually, I heard songs I hadn't heard, which is kind of, after his untimely death, they, they made him the artist of the week, like two weeks in a row. And I was just playing that and, and just still discovering stuff. Like there's still stuff to discover. It's awesome. Well, going back a little, like back to New Brunswick days, cause I asked how you got down to Trenton. Because one of the first times I really got in a lot of trouble was getting dropped off at your old house in New Brunswick for a show, which kind of like fucked me up for a couple years. Because like after <laughs> I got dropped off at that show and was begrudgingly let out of the car in that neighborhood, I had a hard time getting to that part of New Brunswick again for a few years. You know, I had to start taking strange ways on trains and, and stuff to even get to New Brunswick because I couldn't convince an adult to take me there anymore. <laughs> Um, but so, so, and I know none of you guys went to Rutgers, right? Nope. Which I love. Cause I'm, I'm one of the few people too, that did about a decade in New Brunswick with no Rutgers. Um, and so since you were going to New York so much in city gardens, what, what was your connection to the New Brunswick scene that made you guys want to, want to base there and play music there? Well, we couldn't wait to get out of Baskin Ridge as soon as we could basically. Sure. Um, yeah after graduation and we wanted to all move in together and, and do the band. And I think New York would have been the ideal spot, but New Brunswick was like closer and more affordable and just enough. Like, like we needed like a more urban setting or so we thought and, and a place where music happened and there was venues and bands and all this stuff that was kind of in our, I, you know, turned out to be, a lot of it in our imagination. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I guess coming from Baskin Ridge, which was very rural as at the time that we grew up there, it was sure. like yeah. trees and trails and everything. We just wanted more city like environment. That's at least speaking for myself. Um, you, uh, you know, skating all night because there's street lights and 
and good carbs and like, you know, Arden decks and it didn't take much, you know, like going to the center. (laughs) Yeah. When you're coming from that place, I I mean, it's funny you say, because I had such a similar experience, you know, New Brunswick was like a Mecca to me. And now yeah. when I look in hindsight, it's a small place with not that much going on, but it, it <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like the big city to, oh, in yeah. a way. Kind of like, I mean, we knew, yeah. we knew it wasn't New York or anything, but we, you know what I mean? Like I, we, we, we didn't need much. We needed like restaurants oh. that were open late lights that were on like yeah. people, young people, parties, shows, et yeah. cetera. And uh, a place to start the band, you know? And when we got there, I mean, this is like, we've told this story a thousand times, so I don't really want to, beat a dead horse but we got there and there just kind of wasn't any of that much of that going on and and um there was like you know the core tavern had punk bands but it was 21 and over and yeah. we were teenagers yeah and <laughs> we couldn't even go get in there and nor much less get a gig um right we uh we got we got booked one gig through a, a sort of one of our new friends there he was a skinhead and he was friends with the press who was an oi band. And, um, I was a skinhead, like our crew, a lot of the kids were skinheads and sidebar anti fucking racist, anti racist skinheads. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it sucks that when you say the word skinhead, that everyone just thinks of the bonehead white power fucking scumbag racists. But we were the opposite. We were completely the opposite. We were, I like to call it my checkered past because <laughs> very, very into the tone. Uh, well done. Well very done. much like all, the whole like you know these like white boys that wanted to be black and wanted to immerse ourselves in black culture. It was kind of a, it's embarrassing to tell that story, but like we were just like it's the opposite of a of a racist. We were like yes, yeah, man. We're, hey man, like. <laughs> Right, you too, bro. We're, we're down, <laughs> you know. Like, you no, know? and we like walked around with, you know, sharp flyers, which was skinheads against racial prejudice. And we were like in the fucking. We were like the only white people in a completely black neighborhood, yeah. and here we are, boots and braces. And this is right about the time where all those fucking white power people were making a big splash in the, in like Morton Downey Jr. and, and all yeah, of the daytime right. talk shows were yeah, having them on. Motherfucker was on Geraldo and stuff. Exactly. Geraldo. Yeah. Remember when somebody punched Geraldo, broke his yeah, nose or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone should YouTube. Well, maybe don't give it the streams, right? But don't even, yeah, don't even give it don't any Don't even give it the streams, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but whatever. So this was right when people went from never having heard of skin, skinheads to hearing about them all the time and only the white power and racist right. and Nazis. And there's us, like, boots, braces, for the whole shit, you know? And some punks, some skins, but basically, like, all of that, oi, English, Anglophile, you know? Right. Kids, all into that stuff. And uh, just walking around those streets and with our sharp flyers and handing them out, walking right up to people and being like, we're anti-racist. Yeah. What was like the the uh, local reception to it like? Um, it's it's funny. Like on Welton Street, which was the our first house was yeah. fifty four Welton. Um, we quickly because we were so excited and just didn't have any like I don't know what it was the energy that we put out. We were just so <laughs> so like, hey man, you know, like yeah, yeah. We we made friends. We made friends with our next door neighbors 
And then one of the, uh, all right. So this house that we rented, um, it was funny. It, it was like uh, Chris from Chris, the drummer of sticks and stones who came from Basking Ridge and who is how we got hooked up with the house. Okay. We lived there with Pedro, who is a militant Puerto Rican homosexual skinhead. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Is. Uh, self-proclaimed. Um, so there was Pedro and Chris from sticks and stones and then our band and Ugly Bill, and like, <laughs> it was like Ugly Bill, Creepy Gary, um, uh, Mike Irwin, just like a bunch of heads, you know, and then there were skins coming in from D.C. and Kansas City, so the house just sort of filled up with all these different kind, kind of dudes, like, and there was black skinheads and um, um, a mixed-race skinhead named Leo, who was like seven feet tall. I mean, it was pretty kind of like a intimidating-looking bunch, too, all together, um, and so I guess you could say we were probably getting a lot of attention, but this, the other thing about this house is it had an abandoned above ground pool, shitty about maybe eight feet in diameter four four feet deep, five feet deep, who knows, you know, this above ground pool with like sh- just filled with garbage and trash. And we cleaned it out, filled it. We like got some pool shock from somebody we knew in Basking Ridge that had a pool, you know, and we made a nice pool basically for ourselves for that summer. And like we had, as this was happening, we were making friends with our neighbors and their little brothers, um, a lot of like 10 year old age kids or so, 13 year old, 14 year old, like mm-hmm. younger kids we're coming over like, can we swim in the pool? And we're like, yeah, man, let's all hang out. You know, like, and so that it turned into the entire summer. There was like, you know, about eight kids from the block that just hung out at our house, out in the pool, you know, like just hung out all the time. And, uh, you know, they would like wander in cause it was like this open door policy, you know, just, we didn't care. And, there'd be like someone buzzing their head out on the deck and <laughs> right. like, what are you doing, man. And like, I was tattooing them, which is, I'm just remembering this shit as I'm, as I'm telling it, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Want my name on me, man. Be God. And like, I'm Pat Lee. Like I want Pat Lee. And like, I was tattooing these kids <laughs> and their brothers wanted tattoos and they called me be nice. Cause I was nice to everybody. Be nice. Be nice. Uh, we me. might have to bring that back in. I forgot you tattooed like forever. I, well, I, Ugly Bill and I got into it just out of high school, like in still in high school. I was tattooing like Greg and Pete and Bill and uh, you know all the heads. You Did know, somebody show um, you like the basics or what? The first, the first thing I learned was, as I recall, I think it was watching that X documentary. <laughs> the um, what's the name of it? Or was it even on Decline? I can't even remember if it was on Decline of the Western Civilization and X was tattooing themselves or if it was an X, the X documentary. Unknown. What the fuck's the name of it? But anyway, we saw, basically, we, we watched X doing it, um, doing what we called pin tats. Now the kids call stick and poke. But it was like you take a sewing needle, thread it, and then you spin the tip, uh, you spin thread around the tip and you get a little ball of thread uh-huh. up close to the tip and then you dip it in India ink that the the thread soaks up the India ink and then you just poke a dot you poke one dot at a time and the ink runs down the tip right and you go and you, you, you have a dot so you just 
you go dot by dot by dot by dot, you know? Wow. And I was freehanding everything. Just, it was all like, everybody got like, oi or skinhead or yeah. their name <laughs> or a, a, an onk. I couldn't really think of it, you know, a music note. They're all stupid. Like I, I, the biggest one, I most elaborate one I did was on Shal, who wanted a bird with <laughs> he wanted a bird sitting on a drumstick, smoking a butt with sunglasses. <laughs> it's so, <fun. laughs> so bad. So you're basically giving jailhouse tattoos in this like anti-racist skinhead house. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's yeah. that was uh, one of the, one of the many things we did. At that house, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, man, um, I love it. <laughs> skating all night and fucking and just I don't know what and and practicing. You know, we had a jam. We had a basement, so we were writing all our funky jams down there. Yeah, yeah. it's so fun. <laughs> well, I mean, kind of on the same topic. I don't know how much you care to get into it, but I know you've been fairly public on social media about it. You, you've adopted a, a child, yeah. I have. I have a, a beautiful daughter, yeah. Cora. Um, she just turned 10 months Whoa. in the 19. So what was that and, like? Um, what, like, I, I know so little about it. What What was the process like of um, of just making that happen and setting up your life and your house to to to, to allow that? Um, you know, it's it's funny. My my wife was the perfect person to come along in my life because neither of us we were so. We were kind of living parallel lives before we knew each other, and neither of us wanted kids the whole time. We were like, ah, kids, you know. I guess, like, everyone's that way in their 20s, I feel like, but, like, I stayed that way, you know. I was just like, I'm having fun. What do you mean? I'm the kid, you know. Like, I just just live in it, and and her, too. She just went, you know, and basically when we met, she's like, I didn't ever want kids until I met you, and then I wanted to do that with you, and then we both... Um, we both were into the idea of adoption, um, which is also really cool. Like, you know, it's, it's, you need a coalition of the willing, just like starting a band. Yeah. You got to are into the same thing. (laughs) And we were into it and, you know, and then we kind of like dicked around and I think wasted too much time. But in hindsight, we, we kind of just dicked around and like, you know, enjoyed our lives and as, as, uh, Dinks, dual income, no kids. <laughs> oh, that that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> we were kind of running out the the last of that, like, you know, yeah. we're going to the lanes again tonight. Right, like, right. we're all hanging out. Like, we're having fun down here at the beach. Um, just shacking up and but getting married and having a good time. And then we kind of like, we're like, fuck, we, we're getting fucking old. <laughs> we got to do this off the pot. And so we, well, um, Nicole is the planner in the family and she, she went through every adoption agency in New Jersey. I mean, it's, it's at the beginning of the process. You're trying to narrow down the, the massive world of possibilities. Mm. I mean, you're like, oh, do, do we adopt internationally or just domestically? You, you start just sort of like answering questions right. for yourself. And my thing was like, there's fucking kids here. Like, you know, like, um, yeah, there's kids like in New Jersey that need families, sure. you know, and, and so that's, that's where we, that's what we did, you know, and, um, it's, it's actually not that all, all of it, um, is, is actually not that daunting except for it's not cheap. 
Oh, okay. There's that part, right. but they they work with you that way too. I mean, you know what I mean? It's not that even that isn't like a deal breaker. You know, people buy cars and pay them off. <laughs> right. you, right. you know, you, you sell shit, you, you, you come up with money. You, I think when you put it out to the universe, you know what I mean? For something this big and important, it just kind of works. It, it worked for us, you know? Right, right. Um, so that's what we did. We pooled our resources. Um, so that's the paying for it part. But the, the rest of it is not so daunting, really. Um, the real, the, um, the adoption agency that we chose, they, and, I, and I imagine all of them, they, they pretty much hold your hand through the process, the paperwork and so forth. And it's, you know, there's a, a home study where they, they come to your home and they, you're being vetted, I guess, in a sense, you know. Yeah, you know, sure. And, you know, they want to make sure you're not psychopaths. <laughs> right. Or whatever, hoarders and scumbags. Cannibals. Um, Just cannibals. Yeah. Yeah. So it it all went really smoothly. And I think like relative to, I think how long it can take, it it went pretty quickly too. And um, it's, it's funny. Like you got, it's kind of a a mind fuck. Like we got matched with a, a a birth mom, like a woman, a pregnant woman. Cause like pregnant women who want to make an adoption plan, choose an agency, go to them. The agency advocates for them and they, they walk them through the whole thing and they're like, yeah, okay. Like, and then they present them with like, well, here's, here's a, here's a bunch of families in our you know roster. And so that's one of the things you have to do when you're an expectant family is you have to make like a profile book, which is awkward. It was kind of hard and weird for us, but at the same time, it's really simple. It's just a scrapbook. It's like a family, like one sheet. Yeah, it's it's like you know, like one of those like snap. Um, like, what, what did we use? But you know what I mean, like iPhoto books, right. those things. Huh. You just send away, and you get the book in a couple of days. You just you just pick pictures, you lay out a book, you add blurbs. This is us. He he works here and does this. This is our friends. This is our jobs. Like, right. Blah, blah. It's kind of weird, you know. But we had a profile book. Um, one expectant birth mother chose us pretty really early on. And we were like, this is great. And um, we, I, you know, you also can signify like we want a boy or a girl or this race, that race, right. no race, any race. And we were just like first kid, any race, <laughs> of course we don't care. Um, any sex, we don't care, you know? Right. So we were matched quickly with a mom who was having a, a little black boy. And I was like, Oh man, I'm gonna have a boy. Like, and he's black. That's even fucking cooler. Like this is the coolest thing ever. And then we kind of prepared our home and, um, and then she had the, and this went on, you know, this, this whole phase was kind of like exciting. And then she had the baby and, changed her mind. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, no, but that happens. Like you got to roll with yeah, it. Wow. And we're just kind of back in the lottery, you know? And then, and then we got another call. Um, not too much long, not too much further down the road. And it was like a Puerto Rican couple in North Jersey that was expecting a boy. And we were like, cool time to fucking brush up on our Spanish. Cause we can't be the gringo motherfuckers. That yeah. Can't speak right. Spanish sure. Jerk off white people. So, like mentally we just changed channels kind of to that and they're, they, okay. They want to take your book home for the weekend. 
And think about it. So we waited through the weekend and we waited through Monday, Tuesday. We're just expecting this phone call, you know, and your whole life's doing these weird shifts and changes inside all this kind of weird things are going on. And then we, about five days went by just as we were starting to like, just give up hope. We're like, all right, I guess that's kind of, it's kind of weird that they didn't like tell us or something, but like, okay. And then we get a phone call and you're like, you know, Nicole answers and it's like the social worker from the agency. And she's like, is dad home? Is he there? Go get him. Like, and like FaceTime call, you know, and they're like, your parents. And we're like, whoa. And it was Cora, our daughter, like a black girl born in Philly. Okay. And we're like, fucking cool. Like, it's just like, how do you, how do you even describe like the emotions? Like the universe just gave you a baby human being (laughs) to like parents of like, I guess every parent goes through this. Um, natural birth parents and adoptive parents, etc. I, I like to think ours is a little more exciting because <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I it's just been obviously like, and every parent will say this too. It's totally life changing. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and it and continues to be life changing. <laughs> You're in the life-changing. cute phase, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, There's many beyond cute too. Like it's just. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I, I know. I assume at least one of you guys is parents. You were both we, parents. Yeah, we got four between the two of us, but <laughs> this could oh. easily get turned into like a mowing the lawn and, and wiping assholes episode with this. I don't, I don't think that's what the people want, Brian. No, no. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep it real brief on that. Um, yeah, everybody tells me, like, and I know it, like, I'm, the worst is, is coming. Like, she's just starting to, about to walk. Yeah. So, right. Ten months like, is so, so, so perfect. It's such a great age. Yeah. Now, ba- it's just so yeah, it's crazy. Fun. And then based on what you were talking about before with like, you know, your experience with race in New Brunswick and sort of trying to immerse yourself uh, into the neighborhoods you were in and a different culture. Like, w- is there something specific like you guys are hoping or trying to do? to make it as fluid as possible for, for both of you, for your daughter and for you guys to be able to recognize that experience while still recognizing yours. Like, have you talked much about the balance and the, the things you'll do to, to connect those worlds? Yeah. Um, I mean, from this point forward, I mean, it's just all about Cora. And yeah. so I've had everything I could ask for in my life. I've, uh, I'm here to serve now and I'm here to serve her, those two. Okay. And, and Cora, it's like we, that's all we think about is her experience. Um, and we've got a lot of work to do and we don't, we don't want to raise her in like a vanilla white people world. Like we want to, um, surround her with as much diversity. I mean, just diversity. I, I, I think it's the best thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we take her places where we are in the minority. Sure. You know what I mean? as much as possible, educate us, continue to educate ourselves as much as possible um, on every angle that we can so that we can be teachers. But then also we're going to be the students, I think, you know, forever. Yeah. Um, And just be cool and just be cool. And, and we're thinking about that all the time. As a matter of fact, we just recently told our adoption agency to sign us up for 
one more baby. Ooh. And oh, wow. the only okay. stipulation being is that that baby has to be black. We do right. not want. Well, now you're talking about a sibling different story. Yeah. We, she, we want a sibling for her, but, but, but more specifically a black sibling yeah. to, to even the odds in the household. Yeah. And also to, for her to have someone there to go through all of those experiences and have someone to relate to, you know what I mean? Sure. All of it, going to school and, and going to uh, just all of the experiences, I think, of being black that we can't relate. We can't, you know what I mean? Sure, we can just be as, be there for her and, and shower her with love and, and do the very best we can. But we also know that like there are certain things that we can't provide directly. And so we're trying to just sort of fill our world with more of that all the time, That's you know? Awesome. Well, only one cardinal rule, right? No white reggae in the house. <laughs> you better believe That's it. it. <laughs> she's she's already well versed in in all of the reggae, all of the Jamaican stuff I, I already mentioned. Good. But uh, pretty much, not for nothing. But she, that's almost everything we play is. Yeah. Reggae is perfect wacky. for kids. My yeah. actually, both of my kids were born to Bob Marley. Yeah. Um, like literally yeah. in the hospital room, like born to Bob Marley, because we just wanted the vibe, man, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, can you beat it? I mean, I, to me, I'm like, some of the stuff I, I listen to, I'm like, this is as good as you could ever hope for for children's music, it too. Like, oh, it's yeah. like the best feeling music. Like, it's so lo fi that it's like easy on the ears. Three yeah, little birds? Come so on, man. Perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> all of it, dude. I mean, all of it. All, all like, all the soul music out there in the world, like Nina Simone and Sam, Co- all the like Motown stuff, just mm. that's what she's getting. That's what she's hearing. She's going to be as well versed in that. And then like I, I, other music that I think is great, sort of children's music too, is like Cat Stevens. Cause it's yeah, so sure. kind of beautiful. Yeah. Not, not black, but Cat certainly Stevens. not black. No, that guy's white, yeah, but guy's whatever. White, yeah. We'll let him slide. <laughs> and I hope you play Greg's record from time. Play date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've got, we've got, yeah. Children's music in the family too. Greg and Shanti. So he's going to have all that. Well, Brian, this is the perfect opportunity to segue into a segment we have on this show called mystery friend. Mystery frat. Mystery friend. <laughs> So I'm going to tell you a story that happened in your life. I would like you to get into the story and tell me the deets. And then you have to guess which one of your friends told me this story. Hence the mystery friend. Okay. Mystery friend. Okay. Who told you the story? All right. So All right. The, the story starts in 1995 with the Bouncing Souls opening for Rancid at the Roselands. Uh, apparently mm-hmm. this is when Rancid was right before Outcome the Wolves. They're on the precipice of being big. And uh, Madonna's at the show trying right. to sign them to Maverick Records. And I heard that a young, smelly version of you tried fairly aggressively to meet Madonna. Can you tell me what happened there? <laughs> it sounds like exactly like me. And I remember... I don't remember that very... I might have had a couple beers because I don't remember... Real crisp details about that. <laughs> okay. I 
I remember standing there seeing her talking to Tim and being like, I'm, I'm going to go talk to him. <laughs> and then I, but I can't, I, and I'm pretty sure that's what I did, but I can't, I couldn't tell you what I said, you know? Okay. <laughs> All right. But, uh, I liked it. Well, this you know? is a good mystery friend. Well, luckily I have two today. So this one, I, I guess I'll fill in the blanks cause I have some info. Apparently, uh, Madonna, uh, raced out of the back of the show mm-hmm. and went into like a Mercedes and you guys yep. were outside and you had just loaded out and you were hanging out by the van. So you saw this play out and you saw the guys yep. from Rancid being summoned to the car mm-hmm. and they were chatting. And I was told that you were living in squats, super mm-hmm. gross and gnarly. You had a <laughs> tank top that was white. That was now gray and you were pretty mm-hmm. rank, like you were smelling pretty bad. Um, yes. And you kind of had a, a vibe of like, oh, you want to sign punk bands? Like, I'm a fucking punk. Like, what <laughs> yeah. about mine? You know? And That was probably my vibe. Yeah, and then apparently some security guard jumped out of nowhere, yes. like about 10 feet away from Madonna. You tried to kind of duck and dive a little, and, and he kind of O-lined you out. <laughs> and then you couldn't, you couldn't get by and then gave up and go away. Yes, that's why I can't remember what I said to her because I never got the chance. Yeah, I never made it. You never made it. Just the stinky version of you. All right, so, yep. so let's move on to option two then since this one's <laughs> a right. little blurry. I hope this one's not as blurry. And I it's also hope a- as a new father you're willing to talk about it. So <laughs> you're living in New Brunswick on Hamilton Street and apparently you know, wound up with a woman at the Chelsea Hotel. <laughs> and you had a surprise visitor who popped in and uh mm-hmm. and and you know had some fun with the evening. Do you remember this one? Yes. Okay. Can you tell me the story? Oh, or, or is this is this off duty since you're a pops now? It's kind of dark. It's kind of a dark story. I'll I'll, I'll keep I'll give you the like sort of cliff notes. Okay. I, I think I, I kind of end up living at the Chelsea Hotel for few weeks i think i just <laughs> just sort of disappeared from the new brunswick world um that was sort of my first steps into living in new york okay was uh, yeah was staying at the chelsea hotel with that girl she had been Gigi allen's girlfriend Ooh. when he died i think wow. she was a run like a kind of a runaway from san francisco um and uh yeah, all of her friends were junkies, so they were coming in and out of the ha- and in and out of her room, and just they were like, "We're going down to see the cop," and they would like go and get drugs. And this was my first like seeing these things like China White, right? Doing these and heroin, and I'm like, no, no interest in that at all. I wanted to smoke, smoke some weed, drink beer, you know, hang out with this girl. But her friends, yeah, were that was that was my sort of entertainment, I guess. Um, they were coming in and out. It was just kind of kind of lame, honestly. Looking back on it now, it was just like not not a lot of good. And the the person of of note, I suppose, was Dino from the Murder Junkies. Yeah, yeah that is the particular story I heard. Yeah, and I do do remember him being like, "I'm just going to stick this drumstick," and stuck his drum, drum like stuck a drumstick up with his ass. It was like on the floor, like yeah, you guys don't mind, right? And like, <laughs> we had the bed, you know. There was like one bed in the middle of the room. Yeah, 
that these other heads were just kind of coming in and out, kind of partying. There was sort of always like a party going on in the rest of the room. And I remember that. And I'm like, this whole thing's so fucking crazy and surreal. Like, yeah. My first New York like days, like, and, and, you know, I, I can zoom out a little bit on this. And, and this is when I had become restless with living in New Brunswick, just kind of was over right. it. Um, and at, this is out at the same time the band had become busy enough with touring where we could no longer kind of hold down normal lives where we couldn't really hold jobs and uh, and could no longer pay rent in New Brunswick. And so we were just crossing over into being a band who we were like, we had, we had gone across country with lifetime and this girl, Margie booked the tour. And we were like, we were on that tour and we were like, Margie book us another tour, book us another tour. We just want to keep touring. And that's what happened. We, we went back and like on a quote unquote headlining tour in 93, the drink coffee and destroy tour 1993. <laughs> and it was 93 was the pivotal year where we kind of, we had a van and we kind of didn't really have rent, you know? And, and this is when Kate came into the picture cause she ran a futon shop across the street White Lotus Futon, Kate hired me and we're like, okay, cool. This is, this is a job that we can pay for food with, but we can kind of like come and go and, and she'll let us go on tour because Kate's cool. And she was just, <laughs> we're in a touring band. We got to go on tour. And she kind of like, that wasn't really the policy there, but she was just like, okay. Like, and so we would, thanks to Kate and White Lotus Futon, we were able to push forward in, into becoming a, a, a national touring band which, you know, red is punks in a van with nowhere to live who just, yeah, but we have a place to be if we have a gig and we have a van. So we have a home. So, and we would come back into New Brunswick after some touring and like make futons. And then we would sleep on the futon, like the displays. There was a front room, like a nice showroom with all these beds made up with fancy, organic futons and like you know mission missionary frame and the whatever and like they were expensive like yeah, beds white lotus futons. nice very nice nice stuff yeah. and we we would literally sleep on the display <laughs> <laughs> and there's all these like windows in the shop and like drunk college kids would like walk by and be like i think someone's sleeping in there you know <laughs> we'd lay totally still and so yeah, um, and this is during this time. That's when I. That's when the Chelsea Hotel happened, and that's when I was like, "I'm moving to New York." Like I'm just that. This is my next thing. I'm going to New York, and yeah, and you did. Of course, you did some time in in like Sea Squat, some places like that. No, yeah, not. I didn't live in Sea Squat. I lived in Serenity, oh, okay. which is around the right. corner from Sea Squat. Um, but yeah, that that's that was the winter of '93. It was a Chelsea Hotel, so '94 summer. Um, I, as the weather broke, I was just going over there, making some friends and just sleeping where I could. I knew like we had one friend with a, with a room I'd sleep there sometimes. And then I would sleep. I met some other kids and like was sleeping in the park or following these kids around drinking with these kids and then just sleeping on a stoop somewhere wow. or like, we're going to the, like, we're going like down to the East river and there's like a baseball diamond and we sleep there. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like I'm sleeping so I was like just sleeping under the, like in the rough for. And were you like um, you were like all about it like were or 
were you like, what am I doing? Or were you just like all about it? No, like I, was, young and- I was fucking all about it, yeah. man. I loved New York City and it was only a matter of time before I was going to live there. And so I was excited to be there and just just drinking 40s and hanging out and chilling, <laughs> going to shows um, and going back and forth. And the band, uh, meanwhile, the band was all kind of doing the same, that same thing in their own ways, like um, just figuring shit out. And what we did as a band collectively is we, um, we paid for one room in Hoboken, which was about the size of a, you know, you know, maybe eight feet <laughs> by eight feet, little room. And we're like, that's Pete's room. We're going to, it was like 200 bucks a month. And we were like, we can swing that. And there's a basement there. It's, it was a house that Johnny X found and rented oh, cool. for us. But then we like kind of just, we, we rented the one room and then the whole band therefore felt entitled. Like we can practice here. And <laughs> right, just, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. so that, that became another landing pad sure. between tours. And so I was kind of going back and forth between that Hoboken house to the city and then like taking the train and then going to New Brunswick, making some futons for a couple of days and then practice the Hoboken then back to the city again. Yeah. And then eventually I met someone who lived in a squat and serenity and moved in with that person and then did a lot of work to become like quote an asset to the building, right. prove myself, got voted in, got given my own apartment. And then I did, that was a big Big change. Wait, explain um, that to me. That that's something I don't know much about. Like so, so you get there, and it's is it like like a utilitarian style? Like like you fix this thing, or you did like how do you yeah, how do you was, add to it work, to to get that to get that? Um, there were work days, so there would be like a flyer in the hallway, um, and there would be work days, and you know you'd show up and you would work, mm. um. I learned, I got really good at drywall because, you know, we were bringing a building up the code. Um, there was a lot of work to do. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of talent, people who lived there that were like, who worked for the city and were welders and like hmm. got girders and like chop saws. And we made stairs, poured concrete stairs with the steel girders oh, and wow. like did like real heavy, serious work. And then like, you know, some, maybe that was the, the work one, you know, for a few weeks or, and then, or you were like, you were on some other detail mm. or like, and then there was like a guy who had worked for the city and knew how to, and I can't remember exactly how he did this, but we got electricity um, by means of this guy going in a manhole and oh. I was standing watch on one corner. Somebody was standing watch on another corner. You were always looking over your shoulder for JCP and L trucks, yeah. like electric yeah. company. Yeah. Um, you you, you kind of like retrain your priorities always in life around what's going on. And, and like, I remember having to kind of break the habit of like looking for things I could burn because there was a wood burning stove was the only heat source in the apartment. Um, so you, you'd go out, you'd go to like the bar, but then you were always looking for shit. You could go walking home, <laughs> looking in the garbage for shit you could burn. Uh, yeah. Um, and you kept a candle in your jacket because there was just not electricity a lot of the time, you know? And then eventually we resolved it really in a really cool way. Like we, we paid for stoop lights, stoop and hallway lights. And then we built a wall in the basement and, and like had another breaker and all the apartments kind of like jumped 
Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was like a, we eventually got to that level and then, and then it went way beyond that. And now it's a complete, you know, I gave up my apartment years ago, but I mean, obviously years and years ago at this point, but um, now it's a legit place. Like the city gave it to the people who live there. Um, I know. Same with, same with C-Squad. They, um, those guys are stoked. So uh, really cool, really cool. Not a lot of like yeah. shitbag junkies, that, you know, as you would think. Like you might have one or two of those crumbing around. People were dying. Those people were dying though. But right. the people that were that that I was kind of focused on were were my friends. There were guys in bands, right. like you know. Right. Um, that's like that's how I met Sturgeon when when he had choking victim and Squirt lived upstairs from me. He was the drummer. Like they were a pretty good band. There was a band called the Dregs guy mike was a friend of mine those guys are friends of mine there was just like at the time in the 90s there was a lot of music going on there was people making it work you know and then there were shows in the squats and there was also fucking a lot of cool spaces in the neighborhood back then right um really the gas station was one of them like on avenue b i mean you wouldn't recognize there were like night and day difference from now and in such a short time it's become like a mall there but it used to be dangerous and exciting and there used to be a lot of like free open spaces that people cultivated and created gardens community gardens everywhere or like sculpture gardens i mean a lot of art flourished um back then there was spaces abc norio was a, was like kind of like the the punk you know venue but there was and the souls played there we played there with rancid on their first time out east wow. actually and it was a smelly little fucking basement you know <laughs> yeah yeah um, with a with a kind of a community space where like, people exchange ideas and zines are being sold and you know it was a whole thing it was it, a lot of people doing a lot of positive shit it was a it was good to be around and I had a lot of a lot of pride in in myself during those those years because yeah, sure. I I lived the, you know my thing was I was living within my own means right this is what I can afford and I'm I'm not asking for any handouts from anybody. This is, you know, and I have directly building the, the, the space I'm living in and directly, it was very like super simple, you know, mm-hmm. living out of like a, a backpack and a couple of, you know what I mean? You, you kind of, I mean, I've, these are young kid phases. I, I guess I went through too, where I was like, I'm a renunciant. It's spiritual. <laughs> it was like a, that was like a quote. Like a, <laughs> I was like, I said it then half joking because I was living like, I'm like, I don't need anything. You know, like, right, right. It's like a cool minimalist kind of thing. Um, but um, whatever. Well, I mean, it's interesting. It's like now there's all these like really, as you explained. I mean, I think a lot of people have this misconception that the the people involved with those situations are in it for you know, like you said, like getting wasted, having no responsibility, blah blah blah, like fuck the world kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. often, especially, you know, I've seen it more in Europe myself, but like, you know, when you get this collection of really useful and utilitarian people who are deciding to live a different way, it, it can be really um, inspiring. And what, like, what do you think, you know, what, what was the intention? Because, you know, you guys are putting yourselves in, in a very uncomfortable situation, a hard situation. Uh, something that demands like a lot of work and effort. What, what if anything, do you think you were like collectively or individually trying to accomplish? 
Um, that's a really good question. Um, first part of the th- what you said is I couldn't agree more that you've been to Europe. You've seen like the squat thing really uh, the best example of the squat thing there yeah. where it's, it's exactly that it's not, it's the opposite of people that are in fuck ups. You know, these are people that are just creating their own life and mm-hmm. it's, it's harder and you give some shit up, but they are successfully living an alternate lifestyle. And yeah. it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, the, what was the intention um, for us? We never sort of, blinked and we were all focused on the same point forward and never blinking like and everything was secondary to the band progressing and and we didn't even have a a, we never defined what that progression was it was always just the next thing like the next level like leveling up like just beyond like what's the next like let's keep working like and see like if we fill out all these mailing cards, like maybe more people will come to the show. Like right. if we mail all these mailing cards, more people will come to the show. And so there was always that thing in kind of carried on a stick where you're like working towards building something. And it was, it was ambiguous. Is that the right word for that? It was just yeah. sort of undefined. Sure. Um, we, and, and I think that the thing that uh, the real fuel in our tanks was just, being on this adventure together and, and avoiding doing what we knew we didn't want to do. So we, we never really knew, we never had a, a sharp definition of what we wanted, right. but we knew what we didn't want it to, sure. didn't want. Sure, and, sure. and that's, it, it sounds so simple, but that's all it was. We're like every day that we got away with hanging out, you know, <laughs> right. and having right. fun and, and making music or life was a, was a victory. Yeah. And, I still have that attitude today. You know, if it all ended today, I would be happy because I got away with it for 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still like hanging out with my best fucking friends. Like that's, that was my priority in high school, I guess. Like not my only priority, but it was something that I wasn't willing to give up and, and neither will, you know, and I think about this sometimes and we've, we've never talked about it really Pete and Greg and I, but none of us have brothers. And so we kind of filled that role in each, in each other's lives. Like we've, we are as brothers as brothers can be now, you know? Yeah. You guys are so close. It's so cool to see growing up the fighting, the, you know, the compromising, the learning, you know, each other, giving each other space and why, and, and you learn everything. Um, and now we're just like, we're just brothers. Like, you don't have, nothing needs to be said. You know, like how that is with family. Like, yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's so like I'm so blessed to have that. I'm so grateful. Yeah, it's awesome, man. You guys are such a tight knit unit, and and also taught me how to do tour laundry, which is something that <laughs> I believe it was you outside of a bus who taught me how to do tour laundry, and I'm like, oh my god, this just changed my life. Well, yeah, well, Brian, thanks for giving us all that time, man. That was fun. Yeah, my, my pleasure. All right. Well, yo, thanks, Brian. Good luck with everything and the family. And you, you're you're one of the best. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate you. I really do. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time, you guys. I really had fun. Thanks, dude. All right. See you, Brian. All right. Uh, that was good. I feel inspired. Do you? Yeah, I do. I, I just feel nostalgic. 
I feel nostalgic. I also feel like a little bit of a sellout because the people he's talking about, these people keep it so fucking real, you know? And I've made some steps that make me not keep it as real as that. So it makes me feel bad because they keep it so real, you know? (laughs) It's funny, speaking of keeping it real, like the thing, you know, like, so we took the souls on tour as an opening act. This is that right? Is, yeah, this is a really, it's kind of what a depressing, is this is 1996, I think it was Maniacal Laughter uh-huh. for them, and like, we had just released an album on Warner Brothers, and I mean, it was fucking so great to tour with those guys, I mean, I loved, I lo- and I really liked that record, uh, and I loved the band, and they were fun to tour with, but it was like, it was literally the decline of my band, oh. because... We had signed to this major, and this is not an anti-major label rant. This fucking major label, this label loved us. They threw tons of money at us. They fucking did everything they could. It was totally our fault that we imploded. But like, the one thing that did happen was that they sold us this bill of goods that like, we're going to go on this tour. We're going to get a radio, you know, we're going to start getting radio play. And these big venues that they'd booked us at were going to be full. And what happened was half the show's, this like the souls outdrew us like it was obvious right. that like more people were there to see them than us they sold more merch half the shows were our shows where we were getting like spotty radio but it was like a real testament to like they were the fucking hard workers that had just done it diy punk rock and we were this band i mean we've been around for four years at that point but you know we had chosen to go with the major label route and like it didn't work on the first record and the label was ready to give us another record, but we did, we didn't do it. We didn't stick around, but it was a great tour. And like, it was just hilarious that they, you know, here we are, like they're outselling us on merch, even on the nights that were kind of our nights, they just had cooler merch. (laughs) Right? Yeah. They got the logo. They've had like, the logo from the day great one, logo. Which is, I remember which on, is huge. on that tour they had these awesome like work shirts that they had just like spray painted, or maybe they maybe they actually silk screened their 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 logo and, and artwork on, and like it was so brilliant because they had bought them by the pound, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so that's good. like I mean, that's like the testament. That's to me is the bouncing souls. Like they've been doing it from day one in this really like organic internal creative way where they've really never had to answer to too many people. You know, I know they've made their jumps at times. They've had their wrinkles at times, but even it's a Testament now, you know, they put out, uh, you know, this new record. Well, I mean, they did the equivalent right after that. They went to epitaph and it didn't really work for them. Right. Right. And, right. But they're Went still around, and it really warms my heart that they are, that they actually yeah. didn't let it get to their heads the way it did uh, us, you know? And here they are. And they just kept it, they kept it so creative, you know? Like, like they're always constantly doing these things. I mean, they released an album song by song digitally, which, like, no one was doing yet, right. and they did it. Right. You know, like, they, uh, even now, you know, are like, self-releasing and putting these things out and uh, having these connections with their fans and a relationship with their fans that's so close. And they also, you know, I think I mentioned it in the Pete one, is that they're all such uniquely creative people individually that they've been able to all manage their lives really well outside of the Bouncing Souls. 
And I think that's a big testament and something younger bands should take is like, if you're going to start relying on your band as your primary source of everything in your life, then your band is going to be tied to some things eventually that you might not want it to, you know? And if you can manage to to have a thing and not say not make any money, but, you know, not uh, make sure like your kid's applesauce is always getting bought from this money. <laughs> like it gives you a lot of freedom to, to do what you want, to pace yourself, to take right. this much time if you want it, this much time if you need it, release things differently. So the fact that, you know, Brian became a really successful tattoo artist and Pete records music and Greg writes records and books and does his own thing. And like they've always had these fiercely independent and creative personalities that I think. But you have to you have to to survive as like Brian says, we're brothers, you know, like and you can't all. Yeah, you got to have separate lives if you're going to love your brother. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that thing that happened to you, that's just, that happens in anything semi-competitive, like, you know, like a movie where the the co-star is like, oh, the co-star. Or like, <laughs> you know, uh, or like the up-and-coming team you weren't expecting to, to beat the old team. And you're like, well, here they are. They're on the map now. Right. I have not, I've been that band and I've taken that band. Right. Like I've been the band that's ruined the headlining band's tour. And I've had it ruined by right, other ones, right. you know, like, but I like that shit because there are a lot of bands who, who won't take challenging bands as openers. Right. Well, you know, they won't take a great band as an opener because they're a little concerned. And I guess I can understand it from a certain, uh, a certain mentality, but I also, I really believe in like the, the rising tide yeah, brings everybody exactly. up. You and know you what I mean? And, a, and you want to see a great show yeah, before you go if, on. Like, if you love music and you love good people playing music, you should be stoked that they're doing it. And you should make your show that much more exciting afterwards. You know, like, like it should, it should improve the night. Yeah. You know, it's one thing about headlining touring bands that pisses me off is like, you know, you get in, you're charging 30, 40 fucking dollars for your show. You're responsible for the night. Right. You know what I mean? Like, if there's two shit bands before you, you chose them. Exactly. And you made someone pay fucking $20 to yeah, see them. I agree. You know, you're giving people an evening. Like, like book some good fucking bands. And, you know, we actually, once we kind of saw that it was going that way, at least on a few nights where we knew that it was going to be their crowd, we asked if we could switch the bill. And like at that point, like our manager and even Stormy, God bless her, she's the greatest. But even Stormy was like, "No, you can't do that. It just doesn't yeah. look right." And uh, and we didn't. But yeah, couldn't be punk rock anymore after that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think your pants were too tight, Brad. <laughs> they were definitely too tight for punk rock. Anyway, let's wrap it. But Brian, you can check out his Instagram and his beautiful fucking baby. So so I, you know, I grew up with it, with it, with an adopted sister who I got to say, this little baby really reminds me of her. Um, And uh, it's but he's at Brian underscore Keeneland on Instagram and then Bouncing Souls NJ at Instagram and Twitter. Um, Check it out. And of and course, got we've this, got our Patreon. That's right. dot com slash going off track, which 
if you'll help me do an intro, we can do some more fucking New Jersey bonus material yeah. for that show. That's supposed to be the up. aforementioned, the aforementioned Kate Hilt. Yes, which has a lot to do with tonight's podcast. So very much um, so, very much so, and also check out Volume Two, which is all right. Uh, the record, record they just released, which is um, you know reworked classical bouncing soul songs, you know, into this new record, which is cool as hell. Yeah, and they're doing a lot of fun stuff with like their Patreon, being really interactive with fans. So. Support the souls. Hell yeah. Any way you can. One of the we funnest, need, maybe the funnest yeah. punk rock band ever, really. Yeah. If if the, I I dread the day there's no bouncing souls in yes. my life. They've they were there when <laughs> I started, you know, like some of the first shows I went to, I saw these young bands and the you know, in Elks Lodges covering Bouncing Souls songs, and then I started going to their shows. Then I eventually met them and toured with them and like became my peers. And now they're just, they're still going like, yeah. it's just this mainstay in my life. And they're super relevant. They're totally yeah. relevant. Yeah. Always important. Yeah. So I, I dread the day that's not in my life anymore. Don't stop bouncing souls. Please. <laughs> please. I can't take it. The world's too hard. <laughs> I need, I need some consistency, please. I need some bouncing. I need something steady. You're the only <laughs> thing I have. All um, right. Well, thanks, everybody. Right. Thanks for supporting us. And um, we'll see you all next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.